0: Our scripture reading today comes from, first of all, the prophets, and then the gospels, and then the epistles. So we have a a full range of of readings today, they're short, but uh, we're covering a lot of territory. Starting with the book of Haggai, and we'll be in chapter 2. Haggai in the pew Bible is 917, page 917. Uh, If you're not using the pew Bible, it's just a little before the New Testament starts, Close. So Haggai chapter 2 and we'll be reading verse 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a vine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree, have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. And then if you'll turn to the Gospel of Mark, the very first chapter, page 969 in the Pew Bible. Mark 1, starting at verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him, to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Finally, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, on page 1166 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and bulls, and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Father, we ask that your, we will be cleansed in your blood, that we will serve you, and that you will teach us the best ways to do that. Father, we ask that your spirit will be with Yuri as he opens the word of God to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thank you very much for the reading of the word. Of the Lord. Well, for the past couple of weeks, as we've been studying the book of Haggai, I've been encouraging us all to consider our ways. Consider our ways, first by looking to the past by considering how God works, by considering the idea derived from patterns that we find through the whole Bible, that God works in cycles, hundreds of years in length, to sift and to renew and to reveal himself to his people and through his people. I've been con- encouraging us to consider our ways in more personal terms as well, and in terms of our past behaviors, certainly, but also in terms of our firmly held convictions, our firmly held opinions, the views we've inherited or assembled somewhere along the way that color what we see out there in the world and what happens to us, these convictions, these opinions that move us to action. Well, today, following Haggai's prompting, we will start to consider our future. In today's passage, Haggai again and again calls his people to consider from this day onward. To set their hearts to their past experiences only in order to appreciate the difference between their past and their future. They are, in a literal reading, to set their hearts from this day upwards. Set their hearts from this day upwards. That's what it means, literally, in the Hebrew. Consider from this day onward. Set your hearts From this day upwards. Haggai was simple and sincere. His interest was intensely practical. His prophecies are modest compared to the other prophets. Two pages in my Bible and doesn't even fill up the second page. But that's not to say that they're uninspiring. They just get to the heart of the issue very quickly. He said what he needed to say and then closed his mouth. We've seen how God used Haggai's personal style to good advantage. How he quickly identified the root of the problem, which was, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We've seen how he easily dispensed with their excuses. We've seen how he didn't mince words pointing out the troubles they had faced, how he pressed them simply to consider your ways. And then how the Spirit of God then stirred them up and how they responded and got to work. When they needed encouraging, as we saw last week, Haggai got in there and, like a kind but practical coach, acknowledged their disappointment, but fired them up to be strong and to work by directing their gaze beyond the immediate horizon to that end of the season trophy, to the glory, to the honor that lay ahead of them. Well, the passage that Ron read for us takes place a couple of months later. In the meantime, God had begun to speak through Zechariah. If you look on the next page of your Bibles, you'll see how that works together. Now, Zechariah was a very different sort of prophet, one who, with purple prose, called more people, all the people, to repent. God called them through Zechariah to return to me, and I will return to you. Well then, now, at long last, stirred up by the spirit who used both Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai the plain-spoken coach and Zechariah the fiery priest, now, at long last, they had completed stage one of the work that they had begun two decades before. They had completed the foundation of the temple This was a major accomplishment, and it was one that was appropriately celebrated. It was a good day. It was a good day for God to speak one last time through Haggai, and he did twice. But we're only going to be looking at the first one today. It was a good day for Haggai to raise his last pointed questions It was a good day to offer God's final words through him and then close his mouth forever. It was a day to savor, a day to reflect and to look ahead. I've been saying over the last few weeks that to gain a proper perspective on the past, whether you're talking broadly of history or, or more personally of experiences, of behavior, of attitudes, That we need to consider our ways in the light of the scriptures that is the whole bible in the same way to faithfully consider our future we must steep ourselves in the whole bible why because it's the whole bible that is sufficient in other words with the holy spirit's help the bible is enough. The Bible is enough to shape our dreams. The Bible is enough to transform our lives. The Bible is enough to chart a course. But as you are listening, I'm sure you found that today's passage is a good example of why that can be hard for us. For one, I don't know if there's anything that can make many Christians' eyes glaze over faster than a detailed discussion of sacrifices and rituals. And for another, there's the fact that this passage raises at least as many questions as it does answers. But be that as it may, the Bible and the Bible alone, if we take the time and effort to let it speak for itself, to interpret itself, will, with the Spirit's help, answer enough of our questions to see Jesus more and more clearly, to make choices day by day that will bring us more and more in line with his character, and to make plans according to his priorities, plans that we can be sure he will bless. But before we go any further, I'm going to take a moment for a little tangent, and I want to urge you To use whatever you have available to you all your brain power all your will all your time all your heart day by day set them upon the scriptures all your brain power all your will all your time all your heart i want to encourage you that the spirit will make you able to understand will make you able to perceive his ways will make you able to receive his heart for you. Will make you able to consider your ways, to consider your future faithfully and fruitfully. And as you do so day by day, in addition to those natural gifts of time and brain and will and heart, supernaturally enabled, I want to encourage you also to use one of the most amazing yet simple tools we all have available to us in our day, in our day, that is, in the modern time, to gain a deeper knowledge of the Bible and especially to help us discover, as I said before, how the Bible interprets itself. As I said, this is one of the most useful tools and also one of the simplest and we all have access to it, either in your own hard copy of the Bible or on the internet for sure. And this simple tool is a cross-referencing system. I'm not going to go too much into it right now, but a simple cross-reference, what that means is that it, it suggests at least one other passage in the Bible that's relevant to the word or the phrase that you're reading about. You can follow that reference to another location, where, where you'll often find another cross-reference, and on, and on, almost forever. Just to give you a, a little visual representation of just some of the cross-references in the Bible, you can see that each, there's all these colored arcs, and each colored arc is one verse of Scripture connected to another verse of Scripture, and here's a close-up of that amazing visual representation How many incredible, the little bars on the bottom are verses that have a great number of cross-references in them. The longer the bar, the more number of references across. And this representation, I'll go back for a second, this is something like 64,000 cross-references in the Bible where the Bible refers to itself to help us understand it. But since most verses in the Bible, not just the ones that are up here or represented here, will have multiple reference points in other places in Scripture, the number of cross-references shown in this graphic is not even nearly the total number of cross-references in the Bible. This is my favorite reference tool, the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, published in the late 1800s. It has... 500,000 cross-references in it. Here's what it looks like inside. This basically, this is just the part of the page for Haggai chapter 2. It's basically just a list of Bible references. Thankfully, you can find it for free online, and it's a little bit easier to use online. When you look up a verse on biblehub.com, biblehub.com, You don't find just a list, you can find fully written out cross-references from the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge listed there, along with many, many other resources. It's a great website, I use it a lot, biblehub.com. Now I know this can seem really overwhelming, but really it's just about letting the Spirit spur your curiosity about His Word when you're reading, just reading your Bible, and, and you see this little letter next to, a tiny little letter next to the verse you're reading, that usually means that there's a cross-reference there, and just check it out. Oftentimes you can go down a rabbit hole that will take you hours <laughs> to pursue. Now, if you're somebody who doesn't know how to use a cross-reference, cross-referencing system, or you don't even know if you have one in the Bible, just come talk to me afterwards. Well, all that to say, tangent over, When you come across a passage that you have questions about, it's always really helpful to see what the rest of the Bible has to say about it. This can liven up a devotional life that's gone maybe a little stale, and it can also keep us from drawing the wrong conclusions about confusing verse. Well, as I was saying earlier, other than geeking out about cross-referencing systems, I don't know if there's anything that makes Christians' eyes glaze over faster than reading a detailed discussion of sacrifices and rituals. But this was incredibly relevant for Haggai's audience. The question of whether something or someone was holy or whether it was common could be a matter of life or death. Whether you Or it were clean. That is, if you or it were common, whether you or it were clean or unclean. Well, this could deeply affect your day, your week, your month, your whole life. But this was a daily reality in ancient Israel. And this is something that's very hard for us to wrap our minds around. First of all, well, when we read the passage from Haggai in the NIV. You heard this word defiled. Probably a better translation for that word is unclean. And we need to wrap our minds around this little word unclean and deal with it because it's a little bit confusing for us. Because unclean in the Bible doesn't really refer to modern ideas about hygiene. It doesn't have much to do with dirt or germs or anything like that uncleanness was anything that was associated with death or decay or even of abnormality or things that were supposed to remain separate being mixed up. In that case, in that sense, uncleanness was related to sin and to the fall, but being unclean did not necessarily mean that you personally had sinned. And I'll say that again for emphasis, to be unclean did not mean that you had personally done something wrong. The normal state of being was common and clean. There were all sorts of ways, however, that a person or a thing could move from common and be defiled and become unclean. Going the other way, from the common state, it was possible to be sanctified and to become holy. Likewise, something that was unclean could be cleansed. And what was holy could be profaned or, in certain circumstances, could be properly restored to being common by certain rituals. So if you're in this common state you could move you could be defiled and become unclean if you're unclean you could be be cleansed if becoming common then you could become sanctified from that common state to be holy if you're holy you could move back to the common state or then and then around that circle well holiness is what defines god holiness is what defines god so things which were holy we're separated from everything else now what's maybe surprising is that holiness could be transferred by touch and this is what we hear haggai talking about at the beginning of our passage holiness could be transferred by touch to put it simply whatever god touches becomes his becomes holy People or items that were previously common, that touched anything that belonged to God, in other words, anything holy, became themselves holy. In that way, holiness spreads. But whereas holiness could spread under certain conditions, the questions that Haggai put to the priests were designed to reveal that uncleanness spreads more easily than holiness does. According to the priests who answered Haggai in verse 12, for instance, holiness did not automatically transfer from a holy item through the item you were carrying it in to something else. This is verse 11. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. So what you carried it in did not transfer the holiness to whatever whatever it touched. But this was not true of uncleanness. Whenever something unclean touched something clean, it was made unclean. And then whatever it touched became unclean, and so on, and so on. Now, this could certainly be very inconvenient. And as I said, it had the potential to seriously affect your life, but it was actually not a huge problem for society at large, as long as people and the things that they handled had the opportunity to be ritually cleansed, which usually involved a priest and a sacrifice and often water that had to be specially prepared by the priests in and around the temple. Now if you want to to know a little bit more about that or just a kind of a quick idea about what that looks like take a look at Numbers chapter 19. We're not going to go there right now but later on you can take a look at Numbers chapter 19 and it talks about cleansing when you are become unclean by touching a dead body. But the most important thing was that the unclean must never come into contact with the holy. The unclean must never come into contact with the holy. Now, this was really for the protection of the person or thing that was unclean. Because what is holy, being associated with God himself and infinitely pure, destroys what is unclean by its very nature. So this meant that being holy could be just as inconvenient as being unclean because you didn't want anything bad to happen. Yet it was holiness, despite its inconvenience and the careful separation that it entailed, it was holiness to which God had called the nation of Israel. And history had shown that it was God's holy vessels, those whom at Mount Sinai God had called his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When they were not walking in holiness, they were more vulnerable than the so-called unclean Gentile nations, with more potential for jeopardy, more exposure to danger. And as Haggai pointed out in verse 14, This people, this nation, and every work of their hands was far from holy. They were, the whole nation was, in fact, unclean. They had wrongly assumed that holiness was more easily spread, that it was their birthright even, perhaps even that the priests had the holiness of the nation wrapped in the folds of their garments, just like they carried the meat of the sacrifices. Haggai made clear that they had it all backwards. It was uncleanness that spread more easily. And uncleanness defined the people. The uncleanness, as he says, of death itself, despite the fact that God had brought them back to the land as he had promised. The book of Ezekiel makes clear that Solomon's temple, the one that lay in ruins, was defiled by the priests themselves before God left the temple and it was destroyed. And in the course of the destruction of Jerusalem, the whole city became a site of mass death, a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, as Jeremiah had predicted, echoing Moses. And since the temple was destroyed, they had lost the means of making anything clean. So on the day that the foundation of the temple was completed, God connected all these dots for them. He drew a straight line from their ongoing uncleanness to their frustrating yields and their dwindling reserves, in verse 16. He drew a straight line to the blight, the mildew, and the hail, verse 17. He said, indeed, I struck you with all this calamity, Why had he done this? So that they would turn to him. Not just out of a sense of religious duty, but with their whole hearts. Certainly they had been offering sacrifices. They'd been busy since they'd arrived back from Babylon. But as God said through Haggai, what they offer there that is on the altar is unclean. What they offer on the altar is unclean. No amount of sacrifice, then, would do any good if God himself, God himself did not declare them clean. So despite their efforts building the temple throughout the seventh month, throughout the eighth month, throughout the ninth month of their year, they had had yet another disappointing fall harvest. And this is what we read about at the end of our passage. About this time, they would have been starting to sow their fields with seed, with grain. So on this day, standing on the newly finished foundation of the temple, Haggai said, since the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. These were all staple crops. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree. These were their staples, what they could always count on. All of them should have been producing fruit over the past couple of months, but they were barren. And now it was seeding time. There was seed in the barn, ready to be sown. Would they try once again? Would they trust God? or would they give up? On this day, the foundation day, the day they, they had demonstrated that they had been stirred up by the Lord, a day that proved that their hearts had turned back to God, God's message to them was merciful. After connecting the dots for them about the deeper source of the trouble, he was hopeful. At the end, he says, from this day on, from this day forward, consider from this day forward, from this day on, God said, in Haggai's humble words, I will bless you. And it seems, it seems like he did. Judging from what Zechariah said, as he reflected on that moment, and you can read about that in chapter 8 of his book. It seems that things did get better after that. It seems that that moment was a turning point. But it's still interesting. We read no reports anywhere of bumper crops, and it seems from what we know of history, whether you're reading it in the Bible or elsewhere, that life never got particularly easy for them. It was always a struggle even later on when Ezra and Nehemiah arrived on the scene, even when they briefly had a kingdom of their own once again. And to me, it's, it's intriguing that after all this, after asking the priests these pointed questions, after maintaining so emphatically that this people, this nation, and every work of their hands was unclean, after saying that their offerings of all things were unclean, after blessing them, as far as we know, God didn't actually pronounce these returning exiles clean. I'm not sure what that means, actually. Maybe God's blessing implies that from this point onward, the priests had a means of cleansing people in God's sight by means of sacrifices and ceremonial washings and rituals. But then again, maybe not. Maybe they never understood from this point that it is God alone who makes things clean. It is what God says that counts, not whether you perform the proper rituals. This is one of the ways that this passage stirs up at least as many questions as it answers. But even that unresolved question highlights the incredible kindness and mercy that we see in our Lord Jesus' response to those who seemed obviously unclean to those in his time. His compassion in this context is not only much more poignant, it's, it's astonishing in what it implies, what it implies about him. What did the man with leprosy say to him in the passage we read earlier from the Gospel of Mark? Let's turn there now. Chapter 1, verse 40, looking for what the man with leprosy said to Jesus as he approached him. And some of the other Gospels it said he fell on his knees approaching Jesus. What does he say? Page 969, Mark chapter 40, chapter 1, verse 40, he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. We typically assume that this is a request for healing, and indeed Jesus did heal him. But that's not what the man asked for. He was desperate to be healed, of course, but he was even more desperate to be made clean. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus replied in the same terms, addressing with his words the man's uncleanness, not his disease. Mark reveals that Jesus was filled with compassion and that he said simply, I am willing, be clean. Then, just like now, it wasn't hard to find people who offered miracle cures, but how did this man know that Jesus was able to offer him more than that? And was it just because the man was a leper, a kind of untouchable that Mark tells us on this occasion in particular, that Jesus was filled with compassion? Mark doesn't say that about his encounter with the woman who suffered with bleeding, for instance, who was likewise unclean. In fact, Mark only records a similar reaction with Jesus being stirred up to compassion when Jesus saw the crowds, how they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is far from being just a colorful metaphor If we had more time, I could show you in detail that this is language from Haggai's prophetic partner, Zechariah. We could investigate how similar it is to this situation with the leper in that it hints at Jesus' heart, not just for the poor individuals he encountered, but for the whole people of God who had been wandering aimlessly for hundreds of years. What seemed to make Jesus remarkably emotional was the prospect of fulfilling his true purpose, the promises that had been made about him. As he himself said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He ached. To show his people their true destiny. He longed to reveal to them how they labored under a delusion, namely that, as we saw last week, the centerpiece of their religion, Herod's beautiful temple, was a monument to their own glory, not to God's. That their fervency and zeal was, as Paul put it in Romans 10, ignorant of the righteousness of God. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. that far from fleeing in horror from the whiff of anything unclean, they needed instead to cling to the one who had the ultimate authority to pronounce them clean. Well, this leper had nothing to lose. Of all people, he was desperate enough He was chronically unclean enough to recognize the one who could meet his true needs. He could see Jesus for who he really was. And filled with compassion, Mark tells us, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man the Holy God, veiled in flesh, touched an unclean mortal. I am willing, he said, be clean. As he did on a number of similar occasions when his cover was blown and his identity as the Messiah as God in the flesh was in danger of being made widely known before it was time for his ultimate mission to be accomplished. He warned the man not to tell anyone what he had done. Instead, he urged him to do something which he as a leper would certainly not have failed to do since it was his ticket to a normal life. Jesus told him to show himself to the priest and to offer the elaborate sacrifices that Moses specified you can read those if you have a cross-reference. You can read them in Leviticus chapter 14. Why did he do this, though? Why did he say something so obvious? Well, Jesus tells us. And it's the reason that Jesus gives that is especially unusual and suggestive to me. Verse 44, Jesus said, Go, show yourself to the priest as a testimony to them. Not to the priest, singular, but to the priests, plural, the testimony is to be given. But he is to show himself to the priest, singular. That is, he's to show himself to the priest as a testimony to the priesthood, to the same audience that God had spoken to through Haggai. And not primarily, it seems, as proof of his personal healing, but as a testimony, as a witness to them. In what way would this be a testimony to them? Well. If such a cleansing was not a regular occurrence, which seems likely, this genuine miraculous healing would suggest to any and all priests that God was again on the move, that he was once again purifying his people. This would be a massive encouragement to those priests who were genuinely faithful, to those priests whose hearts longed for authentic renewal, For the fulfillment of God's words through the prophets, and an outpouring of the same spirit who had been at work in Haggai and Zechariah's time. Haggai and Zechariah, who had challenged and encouraged their leaders to greater faithfulness, who had stirred the people from their despondency. It would also serve as a warning to those who would be threatened by such a development, in the same way that Malachi warned the priests in his day. We typically think of this as good news, but in Malachi's context, it's a little bit ambiguous. Depends who you are, how you read it. The Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And he will purify the sons of Levi, the priesthood. The priests would know what this poor leper's cleansing signified. That the Lord, the great high priest, was on the horizon that perhaps he had even arrived and this brings us to our final passage and let's turn there now to hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 to 14 let's just read this together let's read this together actually together (laughs) all in unison this is page 1166 on your pew Bible, in your pew Bible. Take it nice and slow to let it sink in. Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. I'm not going to offer much comment on this, although there's obviously a lot you could talk about. I'll only say that there are those here who feel unclean. There are those here who aren't sure if they actually belong here. Some because they know what they've done. Some because they know what they've faced. Some because even if they don't know what they've done, they have a sneaking suspicion that they've failed. Some simply because They know how disappointed they are, disappointed with themselves, disappointed with God. What does Jesus, the great high priest, who offered himself, as the text says, offered himself unblemished to God to cleanse our consciences, what does Jesus, our great high priest, have to say to us? What does he have to say to those who feel disappointed in him? What does Jesus have to say to those who are constantly tempted and fail? What does Jesus have to say to those who are facing trials that they can't endure? What does Jesus have to say to those who are in despair? In me, in me. You are pure. In me, you are holy. In me, you are blessed. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I am willing, he said. Be clean.